As we turn ourselves to God's Word this morning, uh, we come to a passage that is, um, as I said in a little video promo, it's one of the magisterial passages of Scripture. Right? It, is, it is a hymn to Jesus Christ as God. Um, it, there, is, there are very few passages as rich and beautiful and powerful as we find here this morning. And so we, we find the incomparable Christ, the unique and glorious person of Christ, uh, revealed to us in this text. And so let's just, uh, let's just step into it. We're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Hear then the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God. That is Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. And for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. Pray with me. Father, we come to your word this morning and in coming to your word, we come to you. For Father, we long to hear you speak it into our hearts and into our lives with fresh power. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to know Him. Help us to be on our knees before Him. And the glory that is revealed here. Father, open our hearts and our minds that we might hear Your Word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Paul shifts from Forgiveness and redemption in verse 14, in whom, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And he moves from this forgiveness and this redemption to the person and the glory of the Redeemer. We see the place of the cross in this passage because you see it building through all of his description of who Jesus is, building toward verses 19 and 20, which is, 19, the incarnation, and 20, the cross. And so seeing all that Christ is funneling down to the incarnation and the cross. And we see here then the place of the cross and God's eternal purposes in the larger cosmic drama of human history and all that Christ is and all that He continues to be and it all funnels down to His coming, His incarnation, and his death on the cross. And as we read this text, and as we look at the person and the glory of the person of Jesus in this text, it is hard to overestimate the magnitude of what's being said here about who Jesus is, about who he really is. 
who he claimed to be himself and who all of the scripture bears witness to. There are those who want to minimize or deny the uniqueness and the deity of Jesus Christ. It is hard for the world. It's hard for some of the other religions. It's hard for when you walk away from Christianity for others to to understand and appreciate, surrender to who Jesus is and what He has done. And the unique place that He holds in the history and in the religions of the world, the uniqueness of Jesus and what He has done as the only Savior and mediator of mankind. But for those who would minimize or deny the uniqueness and the glory of Christ, I simply say, read the Bible. Right? Read it. Listen to what it is saying. Listen to what God is saying here. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And when it says that He is the image of the invisible God, He is speaking of the person of Christ in His relationship to God Himself. As the image of the Father, the image of Almighty God. The Son images the Father, Jesus, the Christ. So that when you look at Him, when you see Him, we see what the Father is like. And the word there is He is the image, He is the icon. And we might say that some representation, a portrait or a picture, some way that it, that it reflects back to you the, the perfect likeness of the one that's being imaged. And the Son is imaging the Father. And in such a way, it says that He is the image of the invisible God. There's such a way that the invisible God is in some way being made visible in Jesus Christ. Seen, recognized, imaged in the Son. Now, we're not talking physically, and some you would say that he is the image of the invisible God, and if he is some way making the invisible visible, then is the image physical? And we say, no, the image isn't physical. That's not what he's talking about. It's to miss the whole thing. In fact, we don't even know what Jesus looked like. So if, if he did image him physically, we've lost it, because we don't even know what he looked like. The Bible doesn't describe Jesus to us. You'll find in all the Gospels, for all of its revelation of who Jesus is and what he said, you'll never find a physical description. We don't know what he looked like. Isaiah says that he was one who's, you know, who's, who's had no beauty or no, nor glory that would draw us to him. That in his humanity, the glory is veiled and he is simply in his, in his physical representation, in a sense irrelevant, which is why it's not there in the scripture. It is his moral and spiritual character of God that is revealed in the person of Jesus. And so you can read the Gospels and you can, you can know Jesus and get a sense of him, not physically, but his, but his character, his person, his moral and spiritual beauty of who he is. To see what, and when we do, we see what God is like. Which is why in the first application of a sermon like this is to say, then you should be reading the Gospels and returning to them again and again to read, to see Jesus Christ and what he says and the way that he interacts with people, who he is and what he says. Because when we do, it says when we see him, we see the Father. We want to know what God is like. We've got, to, we've got to go back to the Gospels and see what Jesus is like. And he says, when you do that, we see him. This is what Jesus said in John 14, 9. He says this, 
when Thomas says, show us the Father, and Jesus said, whoever has seen me has already seen the Father. In fact, he goes as far as to say, how can you say? How can you even ask to see the Father anymore? You have so seen the Father in me that you shouldn't even be asking to see him anymore. Because when you've seen me, it's as good as seeing God. You know any human being would dare to say such a thing? There's a uniqueness in Jesus. No other human being in the history of the world. When Jesus takes to himself this glory, whoever has seen me has seen God. He images and reveals the Father to such a pure and accurate degree that you, when you've seen him, you've seen the face of God. It's what Hebrews 1.3, another place where it says basically the same thing, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance in his person, in his character. We don't know what he looks like physically, but if you, but if you see him as he's revealed in the Gospels, he's the radiance of, the, of God's glory. He's the very imprint, the exact imprint of the nature of God, the character, the holy, wise, righteous, good, perfect, loving nature of God revealed in his Son, who is the spitting image of his Father. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn over all of creation. And so now we have his relation to the Father as his image, his unique image, and we have his relation to creation where he stands as the firstborn of all that has been created, it says. Some have argued from this passage that when it says he's the firstborn of creation, that it means that he's part of creation. That he's the first created thing. And so that he's part of it. But that is to miss so much of what the text says, what it says elsewhere and all around it, but also to even misunderstand this metaphor, and that's what it is, a metaphor, what it means to stand as the firstborn in history and in this culture, to stand as the firstborn. Jesus is born late in time, so as a man, he is not firstborn. He's not the first human being. So if Jesus, the man, is firstborn of creation, he's born pretty late for that kind of thing. But what it means is that he is unique. He's a unique human being, unlike any other human being. He's the firstborn among the race, and he takes the place and he takes the rights of the firstborn because of who he is. And in those days, in the firstborn of the family, and you know from the, even the parable of the um, you know, of the, the son who goes wild, you know, and the father that, that takes him back. Um, you know, we know from the whole parable there that the firstborn son is the one who's supposed to inherit all the things, right? He is the one who is the father's heir. He inherits the land and all the property and all that belongs to the family. So Jesus stands in the place and the rights of the firstborn as the heir of all things. And as a unique revelation of the Father, in John 1.14, it says this, after John 1.1, everybody knows the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in verse 14, it goes on to say, and the Word became flesh, that Word that was God became flesh, became incarnate, took on a body, became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. What glory is that? The glory is the only Son, so the unique Son. Not a son like any other son. In whatever way, we are sons and daughters. He is the unique son, the only son from the Father, the one who came from the Father and reveals his glory in a unique way. And so as this only unique son, he stands as the firstborn 
over creation. And so in Hebrews 1-2, it says, In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the firstborn, that is, the heir of all things. So here Jesus stands at the head of creation, revealing, imaging the Father, firstborn, and heir of all things. But he moves from just this insight into the person of Christ as the image and the revealer and the firstborn over all things. And it delves down into some of the glory of Christ. And it goes on, it says, For by Him, for by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, yes, all things were created through Him. And for him. It's an amazing statement. It's not a statement you'd make about any human being. Right? The scripture, when it reveals Jesus, it tells us. I mean, we're not talking about someone who's a good moral teacher. Right? We're not talking about somebody who was just really smart, although he was both of those things. Right? When it presents Jesus, it presents him in a way that is you either take him for who he is and what he said or you have to reject him as a madman, the whole liar, lord, or lunatic. He is, either, he is either a liar and he lied about all these things or he's a lunatic and he, you know, with a, uh, grandiose ideas about himself and of the scripture or he is who he said he is. By him all things were created. John 1, 1 to 3, again we see, I mean, this is what the Scripture says in at least three different places about Jesus, that He's the Creator. Right here in Colossians, in, in uh, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same Word in verse 14 that becomes flesh and dwells among us, Lord Jesus. This is the One who was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And there was... Without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing exists. It says nothing exists. It wasn't by Jesus' hand and power. It's an amazing statement of who Jesus is. He says it again in that Hebrews chapter 1, first few verses. In these last days, he's spoken through the prophets and in many ways in, in times past. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, by his unique son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, the firstborn of creation through whom he also created the world, the one who's the radiance of his glory. Jesus stands above and apart, the creator of the world. The world. You know, we know that God created, in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and yet we know now that Jesus created all things, and all things are made through him, and we begin to touch the mystery of the deity of Christ, in the mystery of the Trinity, in the relationship that, that even creation is a Trinitarian event, you know, that God the Father says God created, you know, and then in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and through Him all things are made, and the Word is at creation, and God says when He creates, let there be the Word of God, the power of God, and the Spirit hovers over the waters and brings order out of chaos, and the Father, and the Word of God, the Son, and the Spirit, there's a, there's a Trinitarian beauty to all that God does in creation and Redemption. And when he says he's created all things in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, and he says whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those are the powers that be. 
thrones, the place of power, dominions. All of the powers, visible and invisible powers, authorities and rulers. And it says all these things, when it says all these things were created by Jesus, Jesus is the power that creates every other power. Jesus, is there anybody like him? This one who in the fullness of time, born of a woman, who took on flesh and does what he does, this one, the power behind all powers. And then he goes on, he says, not only is all things, in case you, after he listed them, you know, you had any doubt, all things were created through him, and he says, and for him. Everything was created for Jesus. For the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole cosmos, visible and invisible. We see the purpose in the end for which God created was that Jesus in all things would be preeminent. The Lord Jesus Christ, King and Ruler. Colossians 3.17, a few chapters later, he's going to say, whatever you do in word or deed, do it. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Whatever word comes out of your mouth, whatever you do every day in your whole life, whatever you do, whatever word comes out of your mouth, he says, whatever deed you do in your marriage, in your family, with your children, at your work, in your school, in your relationships, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you were created for him. You were created to Reflect and image his glory. You were, you were born, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And so that whatever we do, we're for him. That's why we exist, the scripture says. His purpose and his glory. And in verse 17, he goes on and says, And, and he is before all things, and in, all things hold to, in him all things hold together. He's before all things. He says to Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. He was before all things. He was before Abraham, and he was before the creation of the world. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And because he's before all things, he, he enters the world. Right, he says in John 16, 28, he says, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world. Right, in other words, he wasn't just born. Right, he wasn't just another birth. He wasn't just another one of us. And, and, and again, he wasn't just part of the creation. He, he comes from outside. I, I come from the Father, and I have come into the world. In, in the form of a child to grow into a man, I come as born under the law, I come in the flesh. But he says he comes from before and from outside. He is the person and the power that existed before all things. And now, not only created the world, but it says, I hold it all together. I'm holding it all together. That you continue in existence. And your atoms don't fly apart into nothingness because I hold all things together. That which spoke it into being and now holds it. Again, in Hebrews 1, he says the same thing where we've been a few times. He says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him and by his word, everything that exists, every power that has been made, exists and holds together and continues to be what it is. Because Jesus says so. 
power behind all existence, of anything that's ever existed. Who is like Jesus? Who can say that he is, he is just one among many? You need to consider him alongside all the others. Listen to what they say. Listen to what they put out. Listen to what they say and then put Jesus next to it and say, who is like Jesus? Who is this one that stands apart? This guy who in verse 18 is the head of the body, the church, that is your head, your Lord, your King. You belong to Him. He is the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, He might be preeminent. So He is the beginning. The beginning of something that God is doing. So when He comes in the fullness of time and is, and is born, and as we see all of this of who Jesus is from eternity past, and the creation of the world to... Uh, Taking on flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see this as it funnels down to being the head of the church, and He is the beginning of something new. He is the beginning of all beginnings, this is true. He was before all things. But He's also, when He says the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that's new. That's done in time. That was done in His, his lifetime in, in 2,000 years ago. And, and that was a beginning too, the beginning of something that God is doing in a new humanity. He's the firstborn from among the dead, the first of many. There'll be many more who are born resurrected from the dead to a new life, not resurrected back into this old one, but into a new one, right? In this beginning of a new humanity, remade in the image of God. He is the firstborn from among the dead, but he won't be the last. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, the resurrection chapter of Scripture says it. He's talking about the resurrection and, and, and timing, and he says, but each one in his own order, Christ is the first fruits, the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first one. But then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, those who belong to him, who have put their faith in him, trusted him and acknowledged that he is who he says he is. He has done and accomplished what he says he has accomplished and trust him and believe in him and give themselves to him so that whatever they do in word or deed, they do it in the name of the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior as they follow him. Unique in the history of the world. There's no one like him. And if it's not been impressive enough so far, if it's not been impressive, his resume so far, if it hasn't caught you or impressed you, in verse 19, I says it's been building up toward the purpose, the larger cosmic purpose of God in the creation of the world through Christ and the history of humanity. And as he reveals who Jesus is in all of that, he brings it down to verses 19 and 20, which is to say, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We reach the fullness of the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ and who He is. When you think about this one who bled and died and bore your sin, who was He? The fullness of God in the flesh. The very glory of God is the glory of Christ. And when he reaches chapter 2, Colossians 2, verse 9, he's going to say, 
in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity lives, dwells in a bodily form. And I simply to say that God took on a body and He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to die the death that you and I cannot afford to die, to bear the sin and to pay the price that we can't afford to pay. This man, Jesus, is telling us was more than a man. Yes, he was truly a man. But he was more than a man. He was truly man. And he was truly God. We're back to the mystery of the Trinity. We tread on holy ground. Trying to understand what God has done. And yet this is the message. This is, this is the heart of Christianity. It's Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no Christianity. And you are left with nothing but a bunch of moral platitudes. But no salvation and no power to live and to be those things. And here in Christ, all is ours as He is the heir of all things. And then the Scripture says that Christ is ours and in Him all things are ours as well. Jesus could image God to humanity because He was God in the flesh. And it explains so much, doesn't it? There are those, again, as you talk about Jesus and the Gospels, and they like you read there, and it says he does miracles. You know, it says he raises people from the dead. It says he walks on the water. It says that he speaks to storms, and they, and they, and they calm. You know, they listen to him. They obey, you know, and they say, I can't believe all that stuff. You know, and they wrestle with, you know, reading about Jesus. But the first thing you have to get around is Jesus, who he said he was. Because if he is, if what we just talked about is true, then those things are nothing. The power behind all powers. The one who's holding all things together. If he says to the wind and the waves, that's enough. That's enough. So the issue is not whether those things are possible, because they fully are to God. If Jesus is who he said he was, listen to the scriptures. Hear what it says. We cannot pick and choose. We defeat ourselves when we come to the Scripture and cut and paste and say, I'm going to take this but not that. And we become God. We just start deciding what, what is God's Word and what isn't, what He has said and what He hasn't said, what He has done and what He hasn't. When we start doing that, we think we're God. And so we take Jesus as He offers Himself to us or we reject Him. But when we take Him as He is, when we hear the Scripture and what it says, we find ourselves on our knees, scrambling to understand and to wrap our hearts and our minds around the glory of the God-man. This one who was willing to come and go to the cross, that we might be what? Verse 20, through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile to Himself, to God the Father, all things. Things on earth or things in heaven making peace through the blood of the cross. Not the blood of any man, but a unique blood of a unique man who is both God and man. You know, it is, it is hard. Our whole heart and mind should be overwhelmed by the point that we reach verse 20 as we read that He is the image of the invisible God and you, you're reading all the way down and then it says it is through Him, through that one, that I've just described to you in all the power and glory. It's through Him that God is reconciling the world and through no other because there's no one else like Him. There's no one else who could do it. 
There's no one else that has the power. There's no one else who is what he was. Through him, the very image of God, existing, creating, sustaining power of the universe, the beginning, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, the one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells, the preeminent being in all of creation. Through him, through this one, God is reconciling. He is doing what only God can do. Making peace. Through the blood of Jesus. Peace and reconciliation are the two things that he speaks out. We'll come back to reconciliation a little bit next week as we, in a couple of weeks as we move into the next passage. But he speaks of this peace and reconciliation between God and humanity. Right? This reconciliation that needs to take place because Jesus brings peace where there was wrath and hostility. In other words, Jesus came to live the life and it presupposes something when he says, I come to reconcile you to God and to make peace between God is to say there wasn't peace and there was a need for reconciliation. There was alienation. The scripture is so clear about it that Jesus came and became a man to live the life that you and I failed to live. And the life that we fail to live creates separation and and alienation with God. It creates hostility. We come under wrath and judgment because we are not who we were created to be. And we don't do everything in word and deed to the name and the glory of the God who made us. And because we are not, he took on flesh and bone so that he could bleed and die. And pay the penalty for the guilt of our sin. Where there is forgiveness of sin, there is reconciliation and peace. Who is like Jesus? There is no one. No one. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but the Lord Jesus Christ. A few more applications just to give you a few more things to take home is to invite you to go back to the Gospels again and read Matthew, Luke, Mark, John, You know, one of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to read and to absorb and to listen to Jesus and to see him interact with people and reveal himself and and, and reveal himself and who he is. And as we get a glimpse, not just of Jesus, but the Father, who God is in all of his glory. We We need to know him in order to love him and to trust him and to worship him as we ought to. And as we think about this one and lift our voices, to whom do we sing? We need to know him intimately and gloriously. We need to renew our minds and strengthen our faith. And this informs and encourages our worship. And so we need to reflect and to meditate on on these things. To memorize a text like this. And spend days going over it while you're driving around in the car. Or standing in the shower doing your hair. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All the fullness of the deity lived in him and he went to the cross for me. These these thoughts change us and shape our days so that we might do everything and say everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this revelation of the glory of who Jesus is also assures and strengthens our confidence in the sufficiency of our Savior. It was no mere man. It was not just anybody, you know, who went to the cross. Oh, I'm glad somebody would do it. You know, it's not like that. I couldn't go to the cross for you and you couldn't do it for me. There is a sufficiency and uniqueness in the person of Jesus as perfect man and true God 
whose death and shedding of his blood is of infinite value and power. He gives assurance all things in heaven and earth and all things are within the scope of the power of his blood. When this one says, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. When this one says, you are free, you are free. When this one says, you are mine, you are his. There's an assurance when this one speaks, it is. You know, and there's a power to know his promises and to know what he has said. You know, gives us confidence when this one who said, let there be light, and there was, offers you life and reconciliation and peace. There it is. It will be. 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And before this one, let every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is no other. And you were created not only by him, but for him. And to take that away, and even if you just took that away and tried to shape your life in that image of the idea that you are not made for yourself. You are not made for yourself. This is where the world goes astray. It always has from day one. We think we are made for ourselves. We think we are our own kings. We think we are masters of our own destiny. We think that we're in charge, and we like to do what we want to do. This is the problem, but when you wrap your mind and bow the knee to the fact that you were created for him, that's why you exist. My friends, that changes everything. So that every word and every act is in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the heart of humanity's rebellion and the need why for our reconciliation is that we live for ourselves instead of him. Isaiah 53, when it's describing the need for the sacrifice of Christ, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one of us to our own way. You know, we're doing our own thing. You know, we're, we're doing what we want. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm, I, I exist for him, and I want his will and his kingdom, not my will and my kingdom. And this is something we have to sort out every day, my friends, because we live for ourselves. We choose for ourselves. We satisfy ourselves. We comfort ourselves. We, we do. We, you know that we do. It's the essence of sin, going our own way, doing what we not, ignoring God's will. St. Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him. Finally, I would simply say, and one thing that we see in this and should understand in all that we are as a church and as his people is the centrality of the cross. In the history of the world, in the purposes of God, in the life and in the ministry and in the message of the church, that all that Jesus was and is presented to us here from he is the image to he is the fullness of the deity, it says through him and the blood of his cross. You see how, where it stands in the purposes of God from all that creation that was through Jesus and for him as he comes to the cross, where it stands in the purposes of God, where it stands in the life of the church, where it stands in, in our lives as followers of Jesus. All the reconciling and saving purposes of God are accomplished in the cross. 
And so we preach Christ. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4. He says, far be it from me that I should boast in anything except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the central purpose of God in the history, the saving and reconciling and peacemaking history of the world. It is the message that saves and makes peace. It is what human race needs, the unique message that the human race needs above all other messages. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2.2 he says this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The church is becoming more and more embarrassed by this message. To talk about the cross. About a man dying and spilling his blood and This message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. And the Greeks, the Gentiles, and the world out there, it's still often a foolishness. Paul says it is through the foolishness of what we preach that men believe and are saved. It is a foolish message in the eyes of the world, but it is our message. It's the only one we got. It stands front and center in our worship and in our living. We see churches preaching politics and stories and morality and and your best life now and, and a thousand other messages that they have for you. But Paul says, and I say to you, that I would know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Unique message. We stand as lights in the darkness. The darkness is not liked it. And it's not understood it. And it doesn't always love us. But we stand in the darkness nonetheless. Speak in the name of Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, how poor a thing this morning has been to try to articulate it. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts and minds to see the glory and the power and the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that he comes to dominate our hearts and our lives as Lord and King and Savior. Father, we pray that you would help us then to bring that home and to understand what it means that we were made by him and for him and that that might change everything. For we ask and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.